This is going to be a sermon where I want you to have your Bibles out and open because we're going to be looking at different texts so that I can show you from the Scriptures that what I'm saying is the truth. Uh, and we're, uh, our, our Scripture today that is sort of gathering our thoughts, although I'm not today going to do a close exegesis of it, is uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. These are some of the most uh, troubling words in the New Testament, and they really cut to the heart of many issues, but they are the words of Jesus Himself, and they must be true. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Father, we come into your presence this morning and we ask that you would enlighten our minds Open our eyes, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe what your word says. For left to ourselves, we are weak and we are foolish. And we don't understand the things that we need to understand in order to live as we ought to live. So give us your help, O oh Father. It's to you that we look and to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week... Um, we came together to learn about two very important parts of our salvation. And uh, I introduced you to something called the Ordo Salutis, which is just the Latin term for the order of salvation. And we find that sort of abbreviated order of salvation in Romans chapter 8. Uh, and it begins in the counsels of God and in the decrees of God in eternity past. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And then it moves through some distinct operations of God in the life of each saved person uh, and in their bodily life and in time. And so, for instance, uh, in time, uh, he regenerates us. And then he calls us to himself by his effectual calling. And then we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ savingly and repent of our sins and things like that. And then we find out that it ends up in eternity future with glorification, where we will appear as glorious. We, the, the things that bedog us and bedevil us here in this world will fall away and the, the body itself will be transformed in the resurrection and we will find ourselves as ageless and glorious sons and daughters of God. And so we see that salvation is both a one-time event, and when the, in the Scriptures, for instance, when the apostles are preaching the gospel to people in the book of Acts, and the, the people say, what must we do to be saved? The, the best place to look for that is the Philippian jailer, and Paul says to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and all your household. And, and of course, we are justified by faith at the moment that we believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, God has decreed from before the foundation of the world that that moment will take place, but we're not actually saved until that moment takes place. And there's some interesting things to do with the relationship between time and eternity, and that makes it sometimes uh, mysterious, but that part is not particularly mysterious. That which God has decreed from before the foundation of the world will take place in time. And when it takes place, it takes place, and it affects everything that comes after. You see, even in eternity, there is something like a flow of events. One thing follows another. And so we see that salvation is both a one-time event in that we're justified, and it's also a process with distinct steps along the way. And so if you ask somebody who is truly born again, are you saved? They can respond truthfully, yes, I have been saved from sin's penalty. That's justification. I am being saved from sin's power. That's sanctification. And I will be saved from sin's presence. That's glorification. And all of those go into our salvation. Now, Within that process, there are two very important interrelated steps, and they're the steps where we spend uh, a moment in time and then the rest of our life after that moment in time. And those two steps are justification, and that's a, a one-time event, we said. And the other, then, is an interactive process where we partner with God uh, by, in the words of Philippians 2.12, working out our salvation in the fear of the Lord, in fear and trembling, uh, and that marks the serious disciple, that fear and trembling of the Lord, knowing that we are only able to do that because, as Philippians 2.12 says, God is at work within you, and what does that work accomplish? Both to will and to act according to His good pleasure. That's His purpose for you. Now, once we understand that distinction between justification and sanctification and how one infallibly leads to the other and how one completely excludes any works, that's justification. Indeed, it's destroyed if you try and bring works into it. Our righteous deeds, says Isaiah, are filthy rags. The other one, though, necessitates good works. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, once we understand this distinction, the one-time event that declares us righteous before a holy God and the process of actually becoming righteous before a holy God with His help, then we begin to see this pattern everywhere in Scripture. And this is where I want you to take out your Bibles. And we're just going to look uh, very quickly at four passages of Scripture where this just jumps right off the page at us. First of all, look at Ephesians chapter 2. This is one probably that every born-again Christian knows. Ephesians chapter 2, and starting in verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's justification. No works involved. By faith, you have been saved. By faith, by grace through faith, and not of works, 
But then look what comes right after that. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Turn towards the back of your Bible a few more uh, books to the book of Titus. It's a little tiny book in what's called the pastoral epistles. You get to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then Titus. And Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Whoops. I goofed up somewhere. Well, let's not worry about Titus chapter 2 and verse 4. Let's go on to 1 Peter. I, I got the wrong text citation. Let's go on to 1 Peter and chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Now I'm all flummoxed by what went wrong with Titus. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 23 through 25. Peter says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Therefore, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So what happens? You are saved, you are born again by an imperishable seed, and then you have to do the things that God wants you to do with the help of His Holy Spirit. You see the pattern. God comes to you and just graciously gives you everything you need in order to turn to Christ and to be born again by being justified by faith in His blood. And when this happens to you, the only thing that you have done is to take the gift that He Himself had to incline your heart in order for you to be even able to desire and perceive the gift. There are no works in it whatsoever. It's all of God. And in that moment, you are declared righteous by God forever. Your salvation is secure. But that same regenerating grace continues to sweep through the whole person, and it begins to change you into a person who will eventually become one who is good. And that grace is infused into you. And that's sanctification. In sanctification, you begin to become, by degrees, more righteous. Your thoughts begin to change. Your desires begin to change. Now, uh, you have zero control over your desires. Uh, your desires are a function of your heart, and that's the center of you, and that's what controls your life. And you don't have any control over what you want. You remember, your heart is your wanter. And you don't have, you, you can't choose what you're going to want. It's just, it's a given. Only God can change what you want. And, and that's what God begins to do. Your, your heart is your wanter, so you have to rely on God to change your heart. But you can begin to work with the parts of you that you do have some control over. And the Bible teaches us in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, that the, the first place where we begin is in our minds. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
And you can begin to, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, retain God in your knowledge. And that's sort of ground zero for the development of a life of godliness, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2. So to begin to change the mind, and by that we, we, we mean to begin to wrestle with and reject the ideas and thoughts and images and feelings that are bad, and to begin to embrace the thoughts and ideas and images and feelings that are good, because that determines how your life is going to go. And the first place where God requires your spirit-assisted cooperation is in the mind. And the Bible is very clear about that. In, in Romans chapter 8, and verses 5 and 6, let's hope my second list is better than my first one. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Where is your mind set? On the flesh and the natural world? Or on the things of the Spirit? In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, we're, we're told once again about how to use our minds to achieve uh, progress in godliness. 2, Cor 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. Paul says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take every thought captive. What are you doing there? You're using your mind. How about Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind in you or among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. What are we to have? The mind that was in Christ Jesus that caused him to become a humble servant. A couple more. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Colossians chapter 3. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible is Colossians chapter 3. I'm, wor I'm working to memorize it, but I'm not there yet. Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Last one, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4, 
14 through 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him or foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them. There's something wrong with his mind. Why is that? Because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So you begin with this spirit-assisted battle for control of your mind. And that increasingly, with the help of God, causes your mind to grow more and more focused on God more and more focused on the things of God, more and more focused on the truth of God as it relates to your day-to-day life, and you begin to recognize that there are all these ideas that are being shot at you from outside of yourself like arrows. These ideas come into your mind as products of and spiritual assaults by the world and its God, Satan. And you notice, as you begin to wrestle with this, what your mind habitually fixes itself on when you aren't paying attention, and how that affects your moods, and your feelings, and your actions. And so you begin trying, with God's help, to begin making the ongoing and relentless change to set your mind on spiritual things. You know, one of the, one of the things that the Lord is working with me on, and, it, and it's a real battle right now for me, is that, is that he, he began to show me how much of my life was dominated by feelings and thoughts of resentment against many different sources in my life. And how I could be sitting there, and, and I don't know why, but for me, it's, it's, it, it, the, the battle is always at the key point uh, when I'm doing the dishes. I, I just, I hate the dishes. And everybody knows that I hate the dishes and they just keep magically appearing and I have to do more dishes. And I'm sitting there and that's when that's when resentment begins rising up inside of me. But it doesn't stay kind of, you know, on one issue. And it begins to sort of churn and you start thinking about all the other things you resent and you start getting mad inside. You ever do this or is it just me? Right. Is it just me? No, okay, I want to make sure. Maybe you're sanct- more sanctified than I am. But, but, but then what do I find happening? I find that as my mind begins to churn on all the things that are wrong and all the things that irritate me and all the people that did this and all the people that did that, and I start to get angry. And then my wife walks in and she's like, hi, honey. And I'm like, hi. She's like, sorry. You know, I, that's an exaggeration. I'm rarely that mean. But, but it, it, it happens. And it affects my emotions, and it affects my speech. And so the Lord is after me to begin dealing with it, not after the the horse has left the barn, but to begin dealing with it at the level of resentment is itself a bad thing that I need to purge from my mind. And so when those resentful thoughts start arising within me, and I'm absolutely convinced there's a demon sitting on my shoulder poking at my heart trying to make it resentful. As those resentful hearts... Uh, ideas start coming up with inside, inside of my mind. I take those thoughts captive. And I say, I reject resentment. And I purge it from my life. And I will not have these thoughts. And here's the cool thing. Really, you can only think of one thing at a time. And if you fix your mind on something besides your resentment, your resentment ceases to become a problem. 
And so I fixed my mind, as Colossians chapter 3 says, not on earthly things, not on the things that are irritating me, the situations that I endured, the pain that was inflicted, the unfairness of it all and everything else. I fixed my mind on things that are above, on Jesus Christ, on his goodness, on his provision for me, on his forgiveness of me for doing some of the same things that I'm resentful for other people doing. I fix my mind on those things. You know where the resentment goes? Bye-bye. It just goes away. And my mood becomes mellow and sweet. That's the battle for the mind. And it might be for you, it might be lust. Or it might be worry. Worry about money. Worry about your health. It, it, It might be any number of things. And you can say, I don't want to live this more this way anymore. By the power of God and with the help of the Holy Spirit, I will begin to take every thought captive and throw it out if it's no good. And I'm going to discipline myself to think, to use my mind in a way that honors God and brings His truth close to my heart. This begins to have a good effect on your whole life, doesn't it? Uh, On both your mind and your heart. And and as as you become much more careful about what you allow your mind to dwell on, then certain things just don't get placed before your heart by your mind, and so your will doesn't have anything to desire, and so there's no temptation. Uh, For example, I used to be a smoker. And I would smoke a pack a day, but because my wife had asthma, I didn't do it at home. I never smoked in the house. Sometimes I'd smoke, you know, on the back patio or something like that. But, but even me coming in, having just had a cigarette, would kind of cause her sometimes to wheeze a little bit. And I didn't want to do that to her. So I would smoke a pack a day, but I would do it all in eight hours. And I would do it at, at the shop where I worked as a mechanic and a record driver. So I'd burn through 20 cigarettes in eight hours and then put them away and go home. I wouldn't smoke anymore. And, and the interesting thing was, right about the time that, that she, I, I graduated a year before her, and so I worked full-time in that shop while I was waiting for her to graduate from college, and she graduates, and she gets a job with General Mills, and they send us to St. Louis for training. And so we moved to St. Louis, and right about that time, I had determined that I was going to give up cigarettes. And I, and I did. I, I put them down, and we moved to St. Louis, and we were there for three months, And I never thought about a cigarette. Never occurred to me. And because I wasn't thinking about the wonderful feeling of, of, you know, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's, I like smoking. You know, if they invented a painless cure for lung cancer and COPD, I'd be right there at the, at the counter ordering another pack of Marlboros. I like it. I I like the feeling of the pack in my hand and the crinkle of the wrapper and you peel it off and that pristine white circles in there and you tap one out and that first one of the day always tastes so good with your coffee. I just like it. Never thought about it. Never crossed my mind. I felt no temptation, therefore, to smoke because my mind was not presenting that to my will and saying, you want to go out and buy a pack? And my will then didn't have to go, yeah, I do. But then General Mills called her up one day and said, we're moving you to your, new, your first sales position. All right, where are we going? Right back to Columbia, Missouri, where you just moved from three months ago, which kind of irritated me, frankly. We went back literally to the apartment next door to our old apartment, 
and I was driving in to get gas at the shop where I worked, and my boss said, what are you doing here? And I said, the company moved us back. He said, you want your job back? And I said, I guess, I ain't got anything better to do. And so he says, well, why don't you start tomorrow? So I go in there the next day, where I had smoked for years, a pack a day in that eight hours, and guess what happened? I'd have chewed my leg off for a cigarette the minute I walked into that shop. Because all of those memories about what I did when I was there and all those habits came flooding back into my mind and began presenting my will with options. But as long as my mind wasn't fixed on it, I didn't have any trouble with it at all. And that's the way all temptation works, loved ones. If you focus your mind elsewhere other than the things that are tempting you, you will find that you have much less trouble giving in to temptation. And you will find that what Satan wants to do is he wants to churn your mind on the evil that he is trying to accomplish in your heart. Well, you start doing this. You start disciplining your mind, taking thoughts captive, setting your mind on things above, working on the renewal of your mind. And all of this, of course, is not something you're doing by yourself. It's with the help of the Holy Spirit. God is at work within you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And so you find over time, you notice a change in your heart. You notice that God is changing your heart. And you find yourself sometimes still wanting bad or sinful things, but you also start to notice that at the same time you have an aversion to those bad things or those sinful things. And so you begin to arrive at a place that feels very odd. You find yourself not wanting to want the evil, even though in some measure you still do want the evil. And you find yourself wishing, for instance, that you just wanted the good so that you could just act easily for the good, but you're still somewhat also attracted to the evil. And so you're in a place where you don't want to want what you now want. And you want to want what you currently don't want. And that fundamentally is described in Psalm 86. In Psalm 86, David calls that a divided heart. Now, remember that only God can change your heart. You can't change your own heart. And that's why David writes in Psalm 86, 11, Lord, give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. And he prays for it. And he asks God to give it to him. Now, what I want you to see is that a divided heart is not bad news. It's good news. You see, the unconverted person doesn't have a divided heart. Because they're all in for sin. They're all in for evil. They're all in for themselves. They don't really want the good unless it somehow benefits them. They don't have any desire for the true and living God and obedience to his ways. So a divided heart, friends, is progress. And progress is a good thing. Now, I do not think we will ever reach the place in this world where we have a completely undivided heart. Because if we did we'd never be able to sin again. But I do think that we can reach the place in this world where the regular outcomes of our lives are outcomes of easy, routine obedience to the things of God. We don't even think about the evil, and that's what we're aiming for. Now, most of us, 
when we go to the grocery store, don't have to walk around the aisles going, I won't steal anything, I won't steal anything, I won't steal anything. It doesn't occur to you, right? So, oh, meat's gotten so expensive, I wonder if I can fit that meat in my pants pocket. You know, you're not, you, that doesn't occur to you. And so it's not a temptation for you. But there are people, for one reason or another, that do struggle with that. And the reason that you don't struggle with it is your mind never, it never occurs to your mind. And even if it did, your will would very quickly reject it. And so you don't worry about stealing. Well, what if you could have that about gossip? I'm talking bad about somebody behind their back. What if you could have that about lust and looking upon another person just to satisfy your lust? What if you could have it about greed or fear? What if it never occurred to you to be afraid to tithe? Because your mind and your heart were so at rest in God, you were like, why, why would I ever struggle with this? That can happen. That's where we want you to go. Now, it's easy to be in that state with things you don't struggle with. And so... The, you're going to be tempted to look at the things you don't struggle with and go, whew, whew, I'm successful. The place you want to go is with the things that you do struggle with. And that struggle is a good thing. It's worth having. It's a wholesome thing. It, it strengthens you. Doing hard things is not bad. What we're aiming for is a life where once that struggle has resolved itself, you are able to do the things you can't now do as easily as you can walk into Ruleys and not worry about shoplifting. It just won't occur to you. It won't be a problem. All right? This, um, this is a, a position in which the desires of God, for God and the desires for the good are growing larger. And the portion that desires evil in your heart is growing smaller. And so God is working on your heart, and you and God are working on your mind together, and you're training your minds to reject bad thoughts and bad ideas and bad images and, and bad feelings. Now, we just need to mention something in passing about feelings, because we talk about bad feelings, right? Um, today, we tend to assume, the world tends to assume, that bad feelings are simply feelings that I don't like, and good feelings are feelings that I do like. And that's not the way it works, not in the kingdom of God. You've got to evaluate your feelings based on what God says. So if you find yourself attracted to another person who is not your spouse, and they are attracted to you, and you're talking to each other in ways that neither of you would talk to each other if your spouses were around, that feels really good. Oh, this person's into me. I must be attractive. She's attractive. Oh, I like her. That feels really good. It's not good. And it's going to go to a bad place if you don't cut it off immediately. But it feels good, but it's not good. Conversely, if you feel guilt and sorrow and shame because you've really done something bad and you've created a lot of damage in the lives of other people who didn't deserve it, that feels bad. But it's not bad. It's good. If it leads you to true repentance. The Bible calls that godly sorrow. Today, people assume that feelings they don't like, and especially guilt and shame, are bad. And feelings that they do like, especially sexual attraction, 
are good. But that is just a symptom of the ever-increasing narcissism in our culture, and it's terribly destructive to people because they never develop a conscience. Now, the progress, or the process, rather, of renewing your mind by grace through the power provided to you by the Holy Spirit, plus the process of God renewing your heart and changing what you want, mostly through prayer that asks God to change your heart, works its way out into your whole being. It begins, because that's the center of you, that's where everything springs from. Once you start changing that, everything that, that proceeds from that in other areas of your life begins to change as well. For instance, it changes what you do with your body. You no longer misuse your body. You begin the process of working with your body to change its automatic responses, which have been trained to do evil. And it works its way out into your relationships with other people. You don't harm others. You don't run them down behind their back. You don't use them and then discard them. You don't lust after them. You don't hate them. You don't try to glorify yourself and put them lower. You don't use their good opinion and their feelings about you as a substitute for pleasing God and obtaining God's approval. You don't entice them to evil or tempt them into sin. You don't try to control them. You don't try to manipulate them into doing what you want them to do. You just let them decide what to do. You give them the information and you say you decide. All of our worldly relationships are marred by two things, mainly. Pride and fear. All the bad things that people do to each other in this world grow out of the pride and the fear that each one of us carries in his or her heart as a legacy of the fall. And so worldly relationships are marked by the results of pride and fear, and that's attack or withdrawal. And Jesus comes in and he begins changing our hearts and he, but he sends us the indwelling spirit and we begin working on our minds together with the spirit and we find that two things happen. First of all, the grace of God humbles us and starts to empty us of pride because pride basically grows out of our attempts to manage our lives apart from God. And pride comes from one of two places in that attempt. Either we are relatively successful compared to other people, we are actually smarter or stronger or more talented or better looking or luckier or more diligent or more hardworking, and they say, hey, everybody look at me. Look at what I've accomplished. Aren't I amazing? That's the pride of the rich. That's the pride of the very successful athlete. That's the pride of the successful student or the beautiful young woman who has all the guys pursuing her. Look at me. Look at what I can do. Look at what I am. I am all that and more. And I am so proud of myself and not in a good way. And when that person comes to Christ, they hear, what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why do you boast as though it's not a gift? Which is what God says to us in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And they shut their mouths for the first time in a long time. The other place pride comes from is as a disguise or a bluff. This happens when we, we know that we're not very accomplished. We know we're not a good athlete. We know we're not the pretty girl. We're not a very good student. We've wrecked our lives with really dumb choices. We can't control how much food we put into our mouths and so we're overweight and ashamed. 
but we pretend like we're not. Now this, fundamentally, is the basis for narcissistic personality disorder, as the psychologists call it. A person who suffers from that disorder says, I am not amazing, and I'm deeply, deeply ashamed of that fact. I'm so ashamed of that fact that I can't face it because it would cripple me. I can't bear to have anyone see me as I truly am. And so I'm going to project an image of confidence and competence to try and fool myself and to fool other people into believing my own hype. And this produces the shrieky, screamy, over-the-top false presentation of self that masks a very fragile ego. Or the boasting about who you know and what you've done to try and impress people. This is the pride of the participation trophy generation that we see paraded on social media. This is the result of the self-esteem movement that the education establishment foisted on our children starting in the late 1970s and uh, gathering steam right up until our day. It tells kids that they're amazing when they haven't done anything that's amazing. I, I read something interesting a few years ago, and it's very telling. There was an international mathematics competition held, and uh, there were large pools of high school-age students from each nation that took the same test. And when the scores were tallied, the South Koreans took first place. They knew the most math of any students, high school-age students in the whole world. Um, the U.S. scored dead last. All right? So South Korea up here, U.S. down here. But after they gave the students the test, they asked them a question. They said, how do you feel about your knowledge of mathematics? Are you confident that you understand this stuff and you're good at it? And the results were very interesting. The U.S. was number one. We are very confident that we know a lot about mathematics. And the South Koreans were in last place. We're not confident at all. And so you see this, the South Koreans were like, they actually knew a lot, but they weren't that confident in their knowledge. The U.S. didn't know much at all, but they were very confident that they were wonderful. That's what our education establishment has done to us. That's our nation today. Psychologists and sociologists tell us that there is a meteoric rise in narcissistic behavior among younger generations, and it's getting worse the younger the group is that you measure. And I want to say, of course it is. Because the people in charge of this thing have rejected the knowledge of the human being that God gave us in the scriptures. And if they had that knowledge, they never would have proceeded down this path. See, if you set out to inculcate in students the fundamental worldview of narcissistic personality disorder, you will produce narcissists. That's just what happens when the leaders of a society reject God and what God says about the human condition. And to those people when they are born again, God says this, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. That's Romans 12, 3. In other words, tell yourself the truth about yourself. Just be honest about what you're good at and what you're not good at. Just face it. And if what you're not good at is a moral or a spiritual issue, like obesity that arises from gluttony or laziness or something like that, just begin addressing those underlying conditions with the help of the Holy Spirit. 
And if it's not, if it's genuinely something you can't help um, to improve by natural means, then, then just accept it. Just rest in it. Just try to get to the place where you can even joke about it unselfconsciously, where you can laugh at yourself, because we're all more than a little bit ridiculous. You know, I, I was a, a tutor when we lived in Rapid City. We participated in a homeschool cooperative called Classical Conversations, and I was a, I was a teacher, basically. And, um, and I, was a pretty, I was a good teacher. I really was. I loved the material. We were doing history. We were doing Latin. We were doing all these other sorts of things. Um, but there was, a, there was a, a module on music. And uh, we were to, to take up the tin whistle, which is about a $3 piece of rolled metal with a plastic nipple on it. I am utterly incapable of the tin whistle. No matter how hard I tried, I could not do right by the tin whistle and just play simple tunes. I couldn't do it. I don't know why. And, and, and at first, I was embarrassed. I was humiliated. I'm like, here I am teaching, and I can't do the tin whistle. But after a while, it kind of became a joke as my little 10-year-old students were running, uh, running rings around me with their tin whistles. And so I decided, all right, if I'm going to be bad at this, I'm going to be really bad at it. I'm going to be like that pilot that knows he's going down in his jet, and so he just points the nose at the ground and turns on the full afterburners and makes the biggest hole in the ground that he can. And so that's what I did. That's how I taught the tin whistle. And everybody had a good time, and I learned I'm not good at the tin whistle, and that's okay. I can laugh at myself about that. You should be able to do that too. Now, ostensibly this sermon is on the doctrine of assurance. And it's supposed to help answer the question, how can I know that I'm saved? And yet I've spent the bulk of my time talking about the doctrine of sanctification and how it works. Why is that? Well, recall that I said that the same grace that justifies you which is the ground of your security and your salvation, but which is also a judicial decree of God that doesn't change you. It's totally outside of you. It's God saying, I will now see you as righteous because I see you through Christ and you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We said that that grace that causes justification continues. It continues to act in your life to cause sanctification, which is a change inside of you that God initiates and supports, but which he also expects you to cooperate with, and he enables you to cooperate with, but he doesn't compel you to cooperate with. The grace that causes justification is irresistible. That's the I in TULIP, the five points of Calvinism. But once you're past that event, once you're on the journey of sanctification, that grace is, to a large degree, quite resistible. Therefore, a major component of assurance of salvation is the presence of sanctifying growth in grace. You infer the presence of what you can't see, justification, because you perceive the actions and motions at work in your life which you can see, sanctification. Now, we do this all the time. Yesterday, I was mowing my lawn going along on my tractor, do 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 everything's fine, all of a sudden, <coughs> and the motor dies. Now, what, what would you think if that was you? Out of gas, right? You wouldn't think, oh, no, the motor just blew up for no reason without any warning. You'd think, I'm probably out of gas, but the gas tank is under a cap under the hood. I couldn't see it, right? 
And so I inferred what I couldn't see. And then I verified once I could see it. The tank was empty, but I inferred that which I couldn't see by that which I could see. If you open your pantry and you find that holes have been chewed in the wrapper of a granola bar and there are little tiny black balls all over the shelf next to the granola bars and the whole pantry smells a little bit mousy, what do you conclude? There's a mouse, right? You don't go, oh, the dogs have gotten weird lately. No, you look at that and go, there's a mouse. Now, you have not seen a mouse, but you infer by what you can see the existence of what you can see. That's how assurance of salvation works in large part. Sanctification is evidence that justification has actually occurred, even though justification is not something you can directly Perceive because it's just a decree of God. It's a judicial act of God. It's totally outside of yourself. You don't have access to it. It doesn't change you. It changes your standing. Sinclair Ferguson has written a really good book called Devoted to God, Blueprints for Sanctification. Now, if you don't know who Sinclair Ferguson is, you should find out. He's wonderful. He's a Scottish minister who lives here in the United States. Uh, He speaks often for Ligonier. Uh, He was the pastor of First Presbyterian Church, ARP, in Columbia, South Carolina for a while. He taught at Westminster Seminary. He's he's all over the place. He's all over the world teaching. He's a very accomplished Reformed theologian. Now, I've got the slide here, and I want you to listen carefully and think carefully about what Sinclair Ferguson says here. Justification, God counting us as righteous in Christ, and sanctification... God making us more and more righteous in ourselves should never be confused, nor is the former dependent on the latter. We'll talk about what that means in a second. We are justified in Christ by grace through faith. We are not justified on the basis of what we have accomplished either before or after we become Christians nor are we justified on the basis of anything that has been done in us, not even what God has done in us by His grace. Now behind that sentence is the specter of Roman Catholicism and their doctrine of justification. And here's what Rome says. Rome says you're justified by baptism. And righteousness is infused into you in baptism. And so if you died... Right after you were baptized, you'd go straight to heaven because you're righteous. And then the first time you sin, what they call a mortal sin, you have killed that grace. And if you were to die right after you committed that mortal sin, you'd go straight to hell. And so they've got a second plank. This is what the Council of Trent says. The second plank of justification for those who have made a shipwreck of their souls, which is everybody. And that's called the sacrament of penance or confession. And you go into the little box with the priest and say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And you confess your sin. And then he says, okay, I'm going to give you something to do, an act of contrition. And once you have done that act of contrition perfectly, come back to me and I will tell you, te absolvo, you are absolved of your sins. You are now back in a state of justification. 
But your justification at that point is dependent on how good you did at the act of contrition. So you are re-justified only when God says, well, you're good enough now that I can call you justified. That is not what we believe. And that is exactly what Sinclair Ferguson is, is speaking against here in this sentence. By contrast, sanctification is something that is worked into us. We actually become holy. Despite these important distinctions, the New Testament also stresses that justification and sanctification are both ours through faith in Jesus Christ. It is therefore not possible to be justified without being sanctified and then growing in holiness. This is why the book of Hebrews, and that's Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. This is why the book of Hebrews says that sanctification is essential, since without it, none of us will ever see the Lord. In order to experience final salvation, sanctification is just as necessary as justification. And why is this? Simply because there is no justification without sanctification. Both are given in Christ. Justification never takes place apart from regeneration, which is the inauguration of sanctification. Put differently, if Christ is not Lord of our lives, sanctifying us, how can he have become our Savior? Indeed, unless we are actually being saved, Christ has not become our Savior. If he is our Savior, the evidence of that will be being saved. By that he means saved from the old lifestyle into a new lifestyle. Now, sanctification, and we're almost done here, sanctification, uh, its activity in your life is not the only indicator or ground of assurance of salvation, but it is the most important one. In other words, if you're not seeing now, we're not talking perfection here, right? Are you moving over the course of your life in the correct direction? Do you see things at work within you that can only be explained by the regenerating power and presence of the Holy Spirit? Are, are your appetites changing? Are your thoughts about your sin changing? Are your desires changing? Is there movement? That's all we're asking. Is there movement in the right direction? And if there's not, then I don't care how many times you went forward and prayed the prayer. I, I, don't, I don't care uh, how many times you've been baptized. If there's not movement, there hasn't been justification. You have not been truly born again. And you are one of the people that Jesus is talking about who doesn't, he doesn't, notice he doesn't say, I used to know you and I forgot you and unfriended you. No, he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You never were in a right relationship with me. You were fooling yourself. That's the issue before us. Now, on top of that, then, the devil has laid a pernicious trap for us right here. And that trap has destroyed many. And that trap can be avoided by understanding what true sanctification looks like. And I must tell you, when you see it clearly, you will discover 
that it is breathtakingly beautiful and it is overwhelmingly desirable. The counterfeit, on the other hand, that Satan presents us with and says, if you can do this, you can call yourself sanctified. The counterfeit is quite ugly. And it's well known in the church because it's pinched and it's cramped and it's legalistic and it's pharisaical and it's petty. And frankly, it's mean. It makes big things out of little things and then screws up the performance of even those little things. It is the kind of thing that Jesus condemned when he said to the Pharisees, you guys are proud of yourselves because you tithe even the herbs that grow in your garden, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should certainly tithe, said Jesus, but not neglect the more important things. There is a kind of sanctification, and I love this description of it. It's a false sanctification, and it's called being sanctified by vinegar. You're just sour. You're angry. You're judgmental and pointy. It's everything the world hates about professing Christians. That is a false sanctification. True sanctification has two pathways, and we will talk about them more next week. First of all, Obedience to the moral law of God, joyously, from the heart. Second of all, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. A life of love. Love for God and love for your neighbor. And the law and the fruit of the Spirit are the pathway upon which we walk for the love of God and the love of your neighbor. Now, as I said, next week we'll unfold that a little bit more, uh, but we're going we're gonna to stop here for today and we're just going to ask the Lord's blessing upon it. Father, I pray that I was clear this morning. And I, and I pray, Father, that you would take uh, everything I've said, and if it's wrong, that you'd correct it or cause it to be forgotten. But if it's right, that you would cause it to be absorbed, loved, cherished, obeyed. Because if it's right, it's from you, and it's your truth, not mine. And that's what we want. We want people who shine like stars in the heavens. So, Lord Jesus Christ, come and convince us of the truth of these things and then help us, Lord Jesus Christ, to begin walking the path and to make progress along the way if we haven't already started. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.